0: I I think, over time, Congress has tried to be a little more methodical about trying to, I mean, that's probably, those words don't probably go together, Congress and methodical.
1: On any given day in Washington DC, policy proposals are created, debated, and decimated by tens of thousands of people and organizations working behind the scenes. Each week a guest and I will visit one of DC's many watering holes and distill the art of advocacy. We'll pull back the curtain a bit and take a look at how they play their part in this sausage factory we call our federal government. So if you're at all interested in how the sausage is made, pull up a chair, grab a drink, and join us for the next 20 minutes or so. After all. What goes better with sausage than a tall, cold one? Welcome to Season 2 of 80-Proof Politics. I'm your host, Bill Shute. I thought we'd kick off Season 2 from a classic location. Today we're at Tortilla Coast, which is at the corner of 1st and D Southeast. It is is literally the heart and soul of Congressional Social Life. It was started back in 1988 by two Texans who found their way to Georgetown University and like every other single Texan who moves to DC within a week realized there's no place to get good Tex-Mex. They instantly struck gold, moved to this location in 96 and ever since it really has been at the center of congressional social life. Not only because of its location, but because they have a great fair They have a wonderful happy hour from 3.30 to 8 every weekday. You can see why congressional staff love this place so well. And Torquia Coast is occasionally graced by the presence of a senator or two coming all the way over to confer and meet with House members. So it, it really has become a destination stop. They have, in addition to their weekday happy hour, a great weekend brunch on Saturdays and Sundays with things like bottomless mimosas, spicy joritos, tequila sunrises, and a special menu different from the weekday with all your favorites, plus things like avocado Texas toast, dulce de leche pancakes, and of course, you got to get your breakfast tacos. My guest is Josh Martin, who's Vice President of Government Affairs with American Defense International, and he just started that back in October after many years, two decades, Close to of it. working yep. in the state government and on Capitol Hill, and we'll get into that in a bit. But Josh, welcome to 80 Fruit Politics, and cheers. Happy to be here, Bill. Okay, so you just started in October of 19, so you are a great guinea pig for a new feature <laughs> we're adding this season called Next Gen Advocates. Right. Periodically we'll interview a guest bird who has just begun a career in advocacy but like yourself has a deep appreciation for what works and what doesn't work because you've been on the receiving end for so long. Right. So before we get into any of that Tell us a bit about ADI. What exactly do you do?
0: So American Defense International is a, uh, I would say, boutique. Uh, we have about 14, 15 people on staff. We focus on serving uh, mostly national security, defense, and intelligence and homeland security clients. So uh, anywhere from big you know, defense prime contractors down to suppliers, integrators, smaller companies that are in the national security space, and a few uh,
1: universities and colleges as well. At universities, doing research grants with uh, the lot of A lot of security? universities
0: that are doing research, uh, research work for the Department of Defense. They are, you know, small, medium, and large, um, and anywhere in between, so.
1: Yeah, I noticed on ADI's website that you advertise as a combination of government relations, uh, business development, strategic consultant, and something called program development and execution. Can you explain that. Yeah, I, you know, I think
0: ADI is 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 pretty unique in this space in that we are have a classic government affairs, you know, lobbying operation where we cover you know House, Senate, and Executive Branch, but we also have a, another layer of business development professionals as well. Um, they're great to work with because they have a lot of program insight into the building and it's a real asset to a lot of our clients as well because they are partners with your program managers, the people that are helping you run your program all the way through, people that have sat in those pro- and on the other side of that and mm-hmm. helped, had to manage manage these programs for the government. So they have a lot of insight, um, can, can help also link up this is the art of the possible you know this is where the technology can be talk to the customer about how to develop that requirement over time and can then help that business build into a program of record it's been a good um, recipe for ADI for for a long time to and then uh, couple that with our advocacy work on the on the hill and within the executive branch as well they've been
1: successful at it now for 26 years 26 that's great that's a good legacy and just to clarify when you say the building. You're talking about that big five-sided building. I am talking about that big
0: five-sided building across the river from here. Yeah,
1: (laughs) Yeah, the people don't always appreciate just how much work gets done at the programmatic level at the Pentagon. And Congress has a big role and a big say, obviously, because technically we're a civilian-controlled defense enterprise. You bet. You come to this job with unique experience in that realm on Capitol Hill, but what are some of the things that you've been doing since October that reflect upon your time on the Hill and maybe informed you on the best way to go about advocating on behalf of your clients?
0: I, you know, I think, number one,
1: um, don't ask your
0: friends to do impossible things. You Great know, advice. And I, and I think that understanding um, what Congress can do, how Congress can effectively influence, you know, a large bureaucracy like the Department of Defense. I, I think having that realistic view of, of, of what they can do then helps you inform the, your client you know, that you are working on their behalf for, this is how to shape a proposal, this is how to shape an initiative, um, you know whether or not it's a you know, funding increase, whether or not it's a policy proposal, whether or not it's um, something that we think that the, the department or the government is doing wrong or, mm-hmm. or inefficiently and, or they could be doing better. Um, I think having that, that vision then helps make our product of advocacy, you know, a lot more effective over time. So that, that's one thing that I've been trying to translate, I think, since I came to ADI um, this last fall. And I, and I have some you know, near-term experience in this, and, and, it's, and it is fairly helpful from the uh, background that I have or, and, and the work that I did you know, with Mr. Thornberry's office, the work that we did on the Armed Services Committee, and having that input is great because we produced a bill. Every year, we legislated. You know, every year. So, this wasn't just a notional thing. We went through the motions every year to produce something. So, I think that's been you know helpful insight. I, I, I hope it's been helpful insight to our clients. You know, since I got there this last fall.
1: Well, I'm sure it has. And we mentioned universities might be interested in hiring ADI for a research grant proposal or to seek some something perhaps programmatic out of the Department of Defense, but but what's an example of somebody else that might come to you and, and want your expertise, and what are they looking for when they come to ADI? Yeah. Uh,
0: so, you know, just this morning, you know, we were having a conversation with a uh, startup tech company that um, provides uh, secure communications. They believe that they have a solution that can provide um, secure messaging communications in classified or sensitive settings. Mm-hmm. So. As a startup, you know, or as a as a as a company that is um, at early stage, they do not have the internal ability to, to look at federal business opportunities. So they would engage a firm like ADI to look for opportunities, and I think too uh, to to influence and inform Congress too about this capability that could make. Communication more efficient, more secure. You're you you don't have personnel that is using that is using unsecure communication tools on their on their phone. So I think it's that full spectrum that you know, a firm like ADI can provide, um, and that's just one example I think of a company you know that we would be working with. But then we work with you know the big guys too, from the you know the big primes that are you know building ships and land systems, big defense contractors, um, big defense companies, uh, space launch companies and understanding that there will be uh, acquisition policies and things like that that, um, that we need to monitor and potentially help shape over time.
1: I'm thinking back on my time with the University of Texas System. We had a hard time at first convincing our researchers, our faculty members, that it wasn't always a great idea to go to the Pentagon and say, here's what I can do for you. Did we have this right when we were advising them to go in and say, how can we help?
0: I, no, I think that that is a good, um, I think that's a good first step. Um, I think they need to understand what your capabilities are, um, what your expertise is, uh, what, what areas are you strong in. And then, you know, through that, through that conversation, I think it develops a partnership. We've got a lot of universities in the state of Texas you know, that are great partners you know for the Department of Defense and I think that sometimes it's a matter of seeking out what do you need, but also having that conversation of this is what you could get to.
1: you know and there's another unique somewhat unique aspect to ADI that not every advocacy firm in town takes advantage of, and I would venture to say, Probably a small minority do, but you have a very extensive and well-experienced advisory board at your we disposal. Do. We so do. You just explain the type of person that might be an advisory board member.
0: You know, I, our 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 advisory board is very diverse in terms of experience, um, uh, what they did in their careers. Uh, they uh, uh, are a great resource for us um to be able to if we do not have a subject matter expert you know currently on staff you know that we could reach out to somebody that has expertise in navy shipbuilding or a particular science program you know or darpa or cyber or um i think that it, it 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 rounds us out in a way that we can present to the client that if if again we don't have an organic, you know, capability, you know, in house. We have relationships with people that we can go to seek advice, and then
1: get us pointed in a direction that will hopefully be beneficial to the client. You mentioned an acronym that many, or maybe, some of our listeners aren't that familiar with. But explain what DARPA is.
0: Uh, DARPA um, is. I'm blanking on the acronym. Now. We use a lot of acronyms when it comes to national security and DoD, but but DARPA basically is a, a research entity that really looks at hard problems, almost science fiction, you know, type, you know, capabilities, and they do some pretty wild stuff, you know. But that it is it is a lot of the work that they do um, is uh, early early, you know. It, on, you know, scientific work, but trying to figure out how they can translate that and put it in the hands of the warfighter at some point. But it really is that, you know, really far over the horizon, you know, look out into the future. Um, this is what we could, you know, this whiz-bang stuff, this is the cool stuff we could do.
1: Yeah, so, yeah. so, the, so the A&R in DARPA, advanced research, is really underselling yes. Yes. the yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. That's exactly. fantastic. Well, so you came about this yeah, not unlike other guests, I've had and a lot of people in town, you didn't start out as a defense expert by any means, did you? Probably didn't spend any time thinking about defense policy, all right? What was your first gig in town?
0: Um, my first gig in town, long time ago. Um, I was an intern for K Granger. So I'm from the Dallas-Fort Worth area, and so um, I was up here uh, doing a, a Washington semester at American University. And I decided to stay uh, over that summer, and I interned for uh, for K. And, and you know made clips you know made coffee i mean whatever they <laughs> whatever yeah, they all the top me jobs, yeah, right. all the top jobs it keeps the congressional office uh running um uh, and i thought it was a blast i mean i had the i had the best time
1: um, were you a government major
0: uh, i was i was um and so i felt like you know i'm applying you know um some of my you know knowledge but i was also it, it was a lot of great experience too you know to see policy making firsthand how do you interact with voters and constituents? I mean, that's, that's the most important yeah. part of that job is to, um, to make sure that your constituent service and how you talk to folks and, you know, what you work on based upon why they sent you to Washington, I think was a really important lesson for me to yeah. learn sure. and see it, see it firsthand, you know, as a 19- or 20-year-old, you know, intern. So did this
1: happen between your sophomore and junior year? I think it was, uh, so that would have been between my junior and senior Okay, year. that's a classic time to come yes. to Washington for an internship. Was, I think that was. That yeah, was but, but you said you came for a program at American University.
0: Yeah, and so um, American University did a Washington semester program. Uh, it was, uh, and I was very interested in, diplomacy and foreign affairs at the time, uh, and they offered a peace and conflict resolution uh, course of study. And a lot of it was, you know, formal dip- diplomacy, uh, understanding, you know, all the issues surrounding conflict, how do um, non-governmental entities, you know, play a role in peace and reconciliation. Uh, it was it was really fascinating to, to, to be able to do that. And then we also you know, we're practically uh, at the time um, uh, looking at a particular conflict to apply some of these lessons, and so the area of focus at the time was on um, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Um, we were had intended to do a work study there uh, that semester, but because of some uh, instability in the in the region, the university decided it was probably not a good idea to send you know a bunch of college kids. Yeah,
1: but much like's happening with China right now, exactly, and the coronavirus. Exactly.
0: So instead, we we shifted focus on the conflict. Conflict and or the troubles, depending on you know uh, your angle um, in Northern Ireland. And
1: no, that uh, had to be fascinating it, time to be there.
0: It really was. You know, it culminated in a, a few week study uh, actually in the region. So we were in Belfast, we were in Dublin, we were in, the, in London, uh, and we were there at the time that the the, the 98 Easter Accords were uh, were signed. And so that right. We were meeting with a lot of the political leaders and parties and uh, the government at the time. While all this was being put together, so um, now that's
1: a real world practical yeah. experience.
0: No, right? it was. Uh, it was. Uh, I, I'm. I'm. I'm happy to have had that. You know, opportunity to experience that, and uh, you know, I think that it was. It was fascinating to to, to see and understand that. You know, these are, are deep rooted conflicts. You know that ultimately, people in this case, not every case, but in this case. People were able to figure out a path forward um, by working together. I mean, it's imperfect, but I think that that was early on, a imprinted in you know on me that it takes a lot of work to do that. It's not easy, um, and so I think it was something you know that also then you know hopefully guided me you know throughout my congressional career as well. That you know sometimes agreement is. It's not just right there, you know, you've, you've, you've got you've to work for it and figure out a way to, 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 to get to yes.
1: Boy, isn't that the truth? I'm sure that served you well in this heightened era of polarization. This is Peter. And this is Tom. We want to tell you guys a little bit about our podcast. Tom and I met in college, became best friends, and then teachers almost 20 years ago. So you graduate, but you don't go into the Foreign Service. No. Um,
0: I had also had an opportunity to work in the state legislature in Austin while I was at UT, and I thought that was a lot of fun. I was lucky enough to, to get a job at the time with uh, Lieutenant Governor Perry, and I uh, was a lowly budget analyst, I think, and I wrote mail, and you know it was, um, but again, I, I got to, you know, Get up every day and go to work in the Capitol, and I thought that was the coolest. Was thing. this during a session? Uh, this, I think, I started when we were uh, off cycle, so we were not in session. After the 2000 election, after um, uh, Bush won the election in 2000, we we transitioned over to the governor's office, and then we were, you know, we were in a legislative session
1: that year, and yeah. that was, you know, we really hit the ground running. And it was no doubt you yeah. did. Yeah. Uh, was it? About that time or after that session when you joined the Office of State Federal Relations? Yes.
0: Yeah, so I, I, I stayed on with the governor's office through the through that session. Um, and I want to say maybe it was the summer after session that I moved back up to D.C. To, to to work for the state here in Washington, D.C. Yeah,
1: what was the role of a state-fed office for a governor? Uh,
0: so worked with a great team up here of Texans. Most of them were Texans, I think, at the time. Several of my, you know, uh, longtime friends I actually met there, you know. So uh, forged a lot of great... Um, Great relationships. the 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 role of that office was to base is to basically be the advocate for the state of Texas here in Washington D.C. to work gotcha. with uh, work with the congressional delegation to highlight priorities that the state might have. Um, uh, be you know, kind of that channel you know between state and federal elected fi- officials. So it's it was a really interesting role to be that intermediary um, and to also work on priorities that the, that matter to the state here in Washington
1: and you had a specific portfolio
0: I worked on health and human services issues um, primarily um, i had you know, done a little bit of work like that in the lieutenant governor's office and uh, the governor's office um, and so uh, um, primarily worked on health and human services issues for a couple
1: of years yeah, it was right. a couple
0: couple years. Um, it was a couple years. Um, um, worked with, like I said, worked with a lot of great Texans. Ed Perez is still, you know, one of my friends <laughs> and um, and I'm mentors. Quite familiar with him, yeah, I, 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 know, I know. I think you know Ed. Yeah. <laughs> so uh,
1: it was it was a fun time. So you left the office of state federal relations and went to work on Capitol Hill. I did. Right, and yeah, you were working for Michael Burgess. I did. Right, your first I, job. So no. so you you become the hell la for one of the few doctors in congress that had to be daunting
0: that's right um it was a little bit um michael burgess he was an ob um from the north texas area he was elected in 2003 um and um so i Came to work in a freshman office, and um, uh, you know, working you know, working for like you say, a physician, you know, um, and handling his healthcare policy work was a, a fun and, and demanding role in that office. And we 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 did a few. I mean, we did a lot. You know, it was it was it was great work. Well, he
1: hit him. the ground running. Yeah, yeah. Oh, he yeah. absolutely. Oh, particularly, yeah. he became in my opinion, from the outside anyway, one of the few real health policy experts that other members would turn to.
0: Yeah, that sort of uh, left an impression on me. It, you know, he came to Congress with a clear idea that he wanted to impact healthcare policy, and he really leaned into that. And I think in terms of, you know, our branding, um, what he was all about, you know, it was very clear that he wanted to be a healthcare expert on Capitol Hill, and he is a healthcare expert. Yeah. You know, on Capitol Hill day. still, um, and so um, it was a it was a real pleasure to to help build that um, uh, in the early days of
1: that operation. And uh, did you start as LA? I started as but an LA. You, you quickly ramped up. I
0: right? started as an LA and then um, I can't re- recall exactly, but um, uh, our, our great LD um, that had started with us, um, uh, she had moved on over to the Senate and uh, I, they, they looked around and they said, you, you can do that, I guess. Uh. <laughs> so, and you didn't uh, prove them wrong. So I figured it, it out. <laughs> That's what they don't tell you up here. There's not really a training manual Isn't that, so Isn't
1: that the truth? You got to kind of figure as it out it's as a team on eighty proof. It is. <laughs> there's, there's so <laughs> it is. many people have gone through that same yep. experience. Yep. Uh, you eventually become deputy chief of staff. I did. Um, it, it, that was that about the time that uh, the debate over Obamacare, the ACA, was kicking up. It was really kicking into gear. Yeah. So Michael. Uh,
0: Dr. Burgess um, was an Energy and Commerce Committee member, so you know the Energy and Commerce Committee um, here on the House side of, 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 of Congress is one of the um, healthcare committees on the House side. Um, um, so, you know, worked on that. Um, I moved over to the Senate um, in 2009.
1: Yeah, what um, precipitated that jump?
0: You know, I think I was ready for a new challenge. Um, I had never worked on the Senate side. Um, had no you know again once again you know jumping in you know not fully you know knowing what the what the what the role was going to be went to go work for uh, senator richard burr from uh, from north carolina as part of his health education labor and pensions committee team and i handled uh, mostly fda drug uh, uh, regulatory issues health insurance uh, issues medicare medicaid chip um, those types of issues. And it was about that time that we were, we started working on uh, Obamacare or healthcare reform
1: at that time. Yeah. Yeah. So how did the job with, with Burr come about? Did you know someone there? I, yeah.
0: I um, I had worked with the woman that I actually uh, uh, filled her role. I had worked with her on a few um, drug regulatory issues over the years over at the Energy and Commerce Committee. I knew Jenny pretty well and when she was, she was looking to leave Mr. Burr's office, she thought I would do an adequate job, I
1: guess. And
0: so she called and said, why don't you come over and talk to us about that?
1: So, were you there when ACA passed, or
0: I wasn't there when ACA passed, but I was there when um, uh, we when when the initial you know legislation legislative push got started. Got um, and up close, you know, the sausage making can be unappealing, and you know that process was was pretty difficult. It was not a very bipartisan process, yeah. you know, at that at that time, which was sort of interesting because on the other side we were working on. Um, some biodefense issues, some food regulatory issues, you know, some food safety issues, which were extremely bipartisan, you know, initiatives.
1: And that is, that's the traditional reputation of the HELP Committee. I think set. that,
0: you know, and, and it was at the time, too, that Senator Kennedy, you know, had gotten sick. Um, he had had to take a leave of absence. Senator Dodd, I think, did a great job of, of coming in and running that committee in his stead. And I think at times, you know, there were flashes of, you know, maybe they really want to work with us, you know, on some things. And I think, you know, we tried to, you know, be constructive. But, you know, sometimes politics takes over. Yeah. Um, and, sure. and I think that was, you know, for um you know for a guy like me you know it was sometimes frustrating at times um that shouldn't we try to put our heads together and come up with the best thing the best policy but unfortunately that was that was not meant to be on that deal
1: <laughs> well was that the approach that you took when you came back to the house to be chief of staff or committee chairman
0: yeah always and and i think it was um i think it was it was pretty easy coming to you know to work for uh for mac um, i became mac thornberry's chief of staff um later that year i didn't I didn't spend a whole lot of time in the Senate um, uh, when um, uh, when when Mac um, said you know would you want to come over and be my chief of staff and I could come back and be back in the Texas delegation and and and, and take on a, a bigger role it was an opportunity that you know, I, I felt like I could not you know pass up and Mac had such a great reputation you know too as a as a as, as somebody that was you know dealt with you straight you know yeah. newest stuff or knows his stuff it was an opportunity that I really jumped at um, and I think too he he and I had a similar approach, and in the national security realm, there is a lot of bipartisan consensus. Sure. So it it, yeah. it makes things easy, you know, in a way to to work, you know, with Republicans and Democrats, depending on where you sit. And so I think again, it was a it was a great opportunity, and I'm 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 glad I took it.
1: And so this starts to build the transition towards what you're doing today, but. You've spent all this time in the healthcare realm, and now you're Chief of Staff to Chairman of Armed Services Committee in the House of Representatives. So I imagine that becomes primary focus, defense, national security. Yeah. And 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 Mac at the
0: time he was I think subcommittee chairman at at HASC on emerging threats, um, uh, which is a which is a great subcommittee. It dives into a lot of the S and T programs, science and technology programs at yep. the department to you know, counter you know terrorism and you know and a lot of the what's out there in the future and on the horizon types of threats. So great subcommittee. I benefited from uh, a lot of our great subcommittee staff at the time that was very generous, you know, with explaining issues, you know, bringing me up to speed, you know, certainly along with with Mac. And so really just trying to learn by osmosis even though I was in a in a managerial role where again the, you know, making sure that the organization was functioning and doing everything that it needed to to, to do was my primary goal. I always felt like I'm not going to be the LD or the LA, and, you know, I need to let my guys do that. But I also need to, you know, understand a lot of these issues, at least at the wave top level, um, in order to be an effective manager and chief of staff. You know, for that's Matt. a true
1: talent because it's hard for a lot of people to do that, particularly when you come up through the ranks and you think you know it, maybe they don't. Yeah. It's hard to just step back and empower somebody to yeah. really run with it. I admire I mean, you for doing it.
0: I always wanted to make sure that you know I wanted to make sure that my people felt like that they were empowered to go out and do their job, um, and that I wasn't gonna you know sit on them or micromanage them um, because. Why would I have hired him in the first place, right? Yeah, you know, right. so uh, I've got other things that I need to do. But I think because we were so immersed and so focused, you know, on national security issues, um, I knew I wouldn't do a good job for Mac if I didn't become more conversant and understand a lot of the details of some of these issues that we worked on.
1: During the time of your tenure, a lot of Mac's focus was on. Reforming the DoD from an organizational standpoint and the acquisition process. Explain to us a bit about how that works and why it was important to reform it.
0: Um, you know, Mac has always been, was always uh, very interested in uh, department organizational policy. How can we buy, you know, things better, faster? I think this goes back to, um, you know, he's been on the committee since he came to Congress. Uh, you know, I, I was not. There for this particular you know piece, but he's largely responsible for you know the creation and organization of the National Nuclear Security Administration. So that is the um, which is it, a Department of Energy. It's animals. a Department of Energy, but it also has you know a DoD. You know it 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 basically is the um, uh, nuclear weapons manager in the federal government. Um, and there was a lot of dysfunction at DOE, and I, he really he he dove in deep. To, to understand what the problems were and offered up some solutions that you know today now um, um, you know we have a semi you know autonomous uh, agency under the Department of Energy yeah. um, that manages the weapons complex. So he he was always very interested um, in some of these complex organizational, Problems, and so when he became chairman at the Armed Services Committee, uh, one of his uh, you know key initiatives was to look across the acquisition process and also th- try to change things over time, but not too much, so the department can digest things and change, actually make a change, and don't basically just push back and say, "No, we're not going to do that," yeah. um, and so. A lot of this is cultural, you know, I mean, it's changing the culture you know, over time and trying to meter, you know, how fast to go or do we need to, to slow down. Um, and, I, and I think um, he was, um, he always had a good sense of that in his
1: years that he was chairman. So acquisition reform was a big part of that whole process for him as well. It, you know, the Department of Defense is no surprise to anyone, one of the largest purchaser of goods for the federal government. Mm-hmm. Most of the big federal contracts and the biggest volume of federal contracts are defense-related. Mm-hmm. What was it about that process that needed changing?
0: Um, I think it takes too long. You know, to field uh, a weapon system. Uh, I think there is there was always a reticence to harness commercial technologies that may not. You know, they may not meet every spec or requirement, um, but they're close enough. Why not buy it off the shelf when it's? You can buy it off the shelf, and it, and if it does 85 or 90 percent of of the job that you're trying to do, why don't you just do that instead of go through a development program? Uh, you know, go through an acquisition pro program, look at all your milestones, uh, and do that. So I think you know we he is he is pushed for more um, common sense. <laughs> if if I could sum it up, that would probably be more common sense in our
1: acquisition system. Yeah. So there is. A key piece of legislation that everybody on armed services works every year. Every year, Congress has to authorize the Department of Defense. And in this process, there's not really a reauthorization, but there's an establishment of direction for how to spend the money. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. New programs, get rid of old programs, change this program, do that. Explain how that process begins and what it takes to get. A piece of legislation like that across the goal line, and I guess we should start by naming it.
0: Yeah. So the National Defense Authorization Act. Uh, Fifty-nine straight years, you know, we have it has been signed into law. Um, uh, it's a it's a true festival of democracy, <laughs> 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 in, in a good way. Um, it starts in the House and the Senate. Subcommittees have uh, different pieces of the bill that they will mark up. Uh, there and at least on the. Uh, House Armed Services Committee, we hold a very lengthy and open uh, full committee markup. Last year's I want to say ran 21 hours or something oh, like uh, that.
1: And at what point of the process does this come you know, from start of the session and the start of the process right. in the subcommittees. How long does it take to get to that markup?
0: Well, uh, the, the real the real kickoff of it is when the President's budget um, comes up to the Hill. Sure, that makes um, sense. Uh, that's so early February. Early February, um, uh, early February and end of March you get the President's budget, you start to have budget hearings, you bring up uh, uniform leaders of the, uh, of the military, um, the Secretary of Defense and the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff come up and talk about the budget request and what's in it, answer questions, and I, that starts to build out a picture of, of what the bill will look like as we get into the actual legislating part of the program. And um, a prioritization
1: do. process yep. starts. Yep. Yep. Okay. Yep. Yep. okay. Is there engagement before the president's budget hits Congress? Trying to, you know, someone in a position of power might want to send some signals yeah the, this it, will never go this will never work yeah. yes we need to be doing this there's
0: there there's a bit of a constant low hum of oversight that happens, and that's a really important part of the process. That's got
1: to um, be a year-round process. It's, it's
0: a it's a year-round process that in, involves uh, committee hearings, meetings, briefings, uh, travel to uh, different components in the United States, around the world. Um, so it's a pretty uh, active oversight uh, effort every year um, that that complements the bill cycle.
1: And and I think I cut you off inadvertently. But when did this? Typically, when does this 21-hour markup take? Usually, sometime
0: early spring. Um, Yeah, it it, it looks like it's going to happen end of April um, this year. We're 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 working under a bit of a compressed time frame. Everybody knows it's an election year, so we better get our business done soon. So it'll it'll take place uh, early spring, um,
1: uh, both in the House and the Senate. And then. Once that's passed, that's not the end all. I no, say. so you got go through appropriations. Yeah, well, yeah. yeah so,
0: so to kind of carry that that through, you get a bill, you go to the floor. That you you know you got to you know you got to dispose of and, and deal with you know hundreds of amendments. Um, there's also the appropriations you know process that happens in parallel to this uh, as well. You know the authorizing bill is again I'm am, am biased having worked for an authorizer for some time. The authorizing bill informs you know it was intended to inform um, you know the work of the appropriators as they, you know, get down into the account level detail that they need to get in, to get into with, with their annual appropriation bill. And then, you know, House and Senate, you know, pass both of their measures, and then we start to conference them together with the Senate. Um, and that's a, that can be... It can be very, it can be short, um, and and I'm using air quotes for my friends who are like, it's never short. Um, uh, so, and, or it can be pretty lengthy. Last year's uh, conference was a pretty,
1: pretty lengthy process. Yeah, I'm sure it was. Yeah, you know, and, and particularly if you have a divided government yep. between the House and Senate, yeah, that's got to stretch things out yep. quite a bit as well. This has to have been an invaluable experience. Not a lot of people get a clear insight into how the defense structure of the national security enterprise works. That has to be something that you can trade on.
0: You bet. I mean, it is from a... Skills on, you know, how to navigate the process to insight about when is the appropriate time, when is a, you know, what, you know, timing matters, you know, in this business. When, you know, when to take something up to the hill, when to try to engage a group of members uh, or a member um, that might be interested in what you're, what you're trying to do. I, I think also, too, uh, understanding that if you can play the long game, too. And I think also understanding that um, uh, you don't have to make all the change all at once um, that uh, that there could be another bite at the apple, um, and that's I think the the great thing about um, uh, the, the the history of the defense authorization bill and the continuity of that um, in that members of Congress believe that it's important to keep doing that um, to maintain that level of oversight and, and input uh, to the departments you know structure operations etc. That I think allow for a lot of input in a in a way that you don't really see. You you know, in other committees or other parts of Congress.
1: You You mentioned a compressed election year. What is a compressed election year and why does that influence the legislative process?
0: So, especially in a presidential election year, um, where then you've got to throw the party conventions, you know, into the mix, there just aren't many days, you know, congressional, you know, legislative working days to work with when they're here in, in Washington and voting. So, um, we 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 um, Congress has tried to be a little more methodical about trying to. I mean, that's probably. Those words don't probably go together, Congress and methodical. Um, but to but to uh, understand that um, if we don't make certain progress at a, at a certain rate, um, it'll be a cataclysm at the end of the year. <laughs> so. Uh, I, I think that that's motivating, you know, even in light of all the, you know, the, the in, in impeachment work and, you know, the, the disagreements between Democrats and Republicans and Democrats in the White House. Um, I think that there really is this sense of, you know, we need to hit our marks, you know, here pretty quick. Because um, come September and October, when folks are going to want to get back into their congressional districts and run for office, that there's just not going to be the time to do that work, you know, after 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 the summer, after, after August break. Yeah, so. and then
1: you've got the added layer of the presidential convention. So that pretty much crunches half the summer out
0: Yeah, right? it really does. It takes a whole week out of July um, that they could be up here doing some work. The Republican convention is going to be in August when they are already um, uh, on break for the August recess. Um, but, again, it's just another, you know,
1: it's another added pressure um, to an already packed year. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you've certainly charted a great career in town, Josh. It, it, in conclusion, as we head towards a wrap, just wondering if you had any salient advice for someone wanting to start a career here in town and, and get kind of that policy background that you've had and then translate it into something completely different. <laughs> Making the transition from health to defense—that's phenomenal.
0: I think working on the Hill, um, uh, if 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 you're interested in it. Uh, it is a great place to work. Um, you're gonna, you know, you're gonna meet all sorts of uh, interesting people, make great friends, uh, and hopefully you get the opportunity to, you know, tackle hard problems. Um, and I think that's the the advice that I would give to, to folks of. Um, don't be afraid um, to be creative, you know in in how you approach a, a, a problem or seek a solution. I think you also need to to understand that, especially if you're working on the hill, um, you know, the people that you work for matter the most, right? And so, you know sometimes understanding, you know, how they would approach a problem or seek a solution, and you know, make them a partner, you know, in in that process, um, is is really really important. But it's a it's a wonderful place to work. I think that if you've got an open mind, you know, and 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 you kind of have that, you know, I, problem solver drive, it's a wonderful place to come and work. And I'm just I'm just glad I had the
1: opportunity to do it. Well, it sounds like it's been a very productive career for you. And I think that's exactly right. That's great advice. So I want to thank you, Josh, for kicking off season two with us and our next gen series here on 80 Proof Politics. And just remember no matter what you think about the current state of politics in Washington these days, whether you think the glass is half full or half empty, there's plenty of room to fill up your drink. Cheers. Thanks, Bill.